1 Samuel chapter number 2, verse number 12 this evening is where our passage will be found. You're probably pretty familiar with what's going on, and you might even be very familiar with the passage of Scripture. It is interesting to note that um, you could essentially call these the Old Testament passages on parenting. As, as strange as that sounds, while there is not a lot of parenting in these passages, you see in the first chapter a mother who prays earnestly for a child. And then you see a mother who, who gives the Lord all the credit for giving her this child, that mother being Hannah and that child being Samuel. And because she honors the words that she had told the Lord, that if he would give her a son, he would, she would give that son back to him, the Bible says that the Lord blesses her and even gives her more children as a result of that. And you see a mother who is truly leaning upon God's spiritual guidance to help her be the parent she needs to be. As strange as it sounds, she only saw him once a year, and yet I think you see a mother who truly turned her children over to God. And then you see a man who, by all accounts, is a very godly man, but his children are a wreck. Did you know that good men don't necessarily mean they're going to be good parents? Did you know that godly men doesn't necessarily, being a godly man does not necessarily mean you'll be a good and godly parent. They're, they're, not, they're not synonymous with each other. And, and, and we'll study that this evening. Now, what I think I see in today's culture is, I see parents that are just struggling to understand how to biblically raise their children in 21st century America. The reality is we say this type of stuff all the time. Boy, the world is getting worse and worse and worse. No, sin has always been a part of this world. And while we deal with different temptations and different struggles as parents, they're no more or no less than what people have faced in the past. You say, I don't agree with that, Brother Andrew. Well, since the fall of man, the prince and the power of the air has been Satan. And that's been the case since Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. And so I think that parenting is hard. I think it's difficult. But I think what we struggle with is how parents, as, as we study the Bible, we struggle with finding the, the, the balance and harmony between being a biblical parent and being a parent in 21st century America. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You're at Chili's. And your children are acting up. I tell, I tell people all the time, me and Amy are pretty good parents with one child. With two children, we're slightly below average. And with three children, we're awful parents. And every once in a while, we'll, take, we'll get daring and brave and ignore the Spirit's leading. And we'll take all of our children to a restaurant at the same time. And we'll go in there, and man, they get bad, and they start, you know crying and touching that little Ziosk thing that charges me $1.99 for a game they'll play for 38 seconds when I could just buy the app and have it forever, but whatever. Uh, and so they get bad and the whole restaurant takes note. And I say to my child, if you don't stop, I'm going to take you to the restroom and spank you. Right? But I, I kind of have to muffle my voice. At home, I'd be like, I will rain the terror of God upon you. You know, at home, that's what I would do. But at Chili's, I have to, if you don't stop, I'm going to take you to the restroom and stink your bottom. Right? That's the closest I get to speaking in tongues. And, and then, believe it or not, every once in a while, my beautiful, wonderful, loving children will challenge that 
and I'll have to take them to the restroom. And I get them up, and I take them to the restroom. But why do I take them to the restroom? Why don't I just do it there? I don't take them to the restroom at home. Why don't I just do it there? I'll tell you why. Because we live in America. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, but I know that this is what more often than not, this is what I do. I get them to the restaurant, and the thought goes through my mind. Y'all ever heard that a dog forgets what they did wrong two seconds after they do it? I think my children are way dumber than dogs. I mean, a second... I'm just kidding, Caitlin. I'm just kidding, babe. She, that's like the first time she paid attention to each other crying on the front pew. No, but, but really, I, I don't know how long a child with, it kind of holds on to what they did wrong and the, the, you know all that going on. So by the time I get to the restroom and we've got through the, I don't want to go, that's the boys' restroom. You know, by the time we get through all of that, I get to the stall and I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't even know if the spanking would do any good now. And, and you say, you're just, that, I, that's not how I would do it at all. Well, maybe I'm one of those parents that's struggling finding the balance between biblical parenting and 21st century America conditions. And you say, Brother Andrew, you're just a little yellow-bellied. Maybe you should just spank them there at the table. Maybe I should. But I'm saying there is a real struggle here that I don't know. Like I said earlier, the temptations and struggles of past generations were no less or no more, but they were different. And in, in past generations, from what I've heard, uh, people sitting next to you at Chili's would just say, hey, do you want me to take them outside? Do you want me to spank them for you? Or do you want to do it yourself? That's not the generation we live in. And so we're struggling to find this. And this evening, what I want to do is I want to take the Bible, and I want to, t- from a father's perspective, but from a parenting perspective in general, I want to take a look at lessons that godly fathers slash parents should instill in their children. The reason I say should is because a lot of people aren't. Take a look in verse number 12 in chapter number 2. The Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. In other words, as the, as the sacrifice was about to be offered, they would send essentially a, hitch, a henchman, uh, one of their servants, Eli and, or, or Phineas and Hophni, they would send one of their servants to go and say, hey, hey, before you put that on the altar, why don't you just cut off some of the meat for, for the priests? Well, that was not according to Moses' law. We'll get into that in just a little while. The general practice of the day was that after it had been boiled, essentially, uh, it had been boiled, they would take a flesh hook or imagine like a a, a big fork type instrument and they would reach in to the, the flesh pot and they would pull it out and whatever came out on that fork, that would be the priest's share. And what Hophni and Phineas were doing is they were saying, hey, we don't want boiled meat. 
And it could have been for a thousand reasons, and we'll talk about that in a little while. It could have been for different reasons, but irregardless, they were not following the procedures that should have been followed. They were just saying, hey, this is what we want, so that's what's going to happen. And then you can see here, uh, verse number 16, it got to the point where this servant would say, if any man said unto them, let them not fail to burn the fat presently. In other words, one guy would say, hey, but this isn't the right way to do it. We should burn this. We should offer the fat to the Lord. That's the best part of the meat. That's the first fruits, in other words. Let's offer that to the Lord and then take as much as thy soul desireth. Then this servant of these two young men would say, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. They had essentially become mafia. Guys going around collecting the, the, the fruits because they were in charge. And, and this is the practices of these two young men. The Bible says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. I'll tell you, one of the remarkable things about Samuel, at least in his early years, was that being a child, he was not influenced by these two sons of the priest. They would have been always around each other. Uh, but, but even at a young age, Samuel saw what they were doing was wrong and Eli was doing the right things. He just wasn't a good dad. He was a godly man, but he wasn't a godly and good father. And so Samuel gravitated to old, an older man, which by the way is very odd that a young child would gravitate to an older man instead of the cool kids of, of his, of his kind of area. But may that be a lesson to us dads that our kids do not always need to be around their peers. Their peers struggle with the same stuff they're struggling with. It is good for young men to have godly influences in their life. Man, that verse that preacher mentioned this morning, that the aged men would teach these younger men. Uh, there's just certain lessons that peers cannot and are not equipped to teach your children. And, and maybe that's a lesson that we should talk about another time. But the Bible says, moreover... His mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee this, uh, give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. You see, the Lord never takes anything from you. He's not willing to give back many fold over. Uh, she gave Samuel unto the Lord. She saw him one time a year. And the Lord says, because you've done this, I'll give you five children from what was a barren womb. What a blessing that is. There's a tremendous lesson there. The Bible says, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old and, had, and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them." 
that verse essentially, Eli is pointing to the fact that the sin that they were committing was greater than just a trespass against their brother. Uh, Eli says, hey guys, you're messing with God's house. You're messing with God's offering. And the sin of which you're committing is not one of just man against man. You are sinning against God. It kind of reminds us of, of, uh, of Acts chapter number 5 when Ananias and Sapphira sin against the Lord and, and they lie to everybody and they say, yeah, well, we sold the land for this price, but they kept back part of the price of the land for themselves. And, and Peter says, who, who made you do that? For you have not sinned against man. You have lied unto the Holy Ghost. This is a sin against God, and that's what Eli says to them. And the Bible says in verse 26, And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Now there's many lessons I believe parents should teach their children, um, but aren't. I would say that some lessons that my dad taught me that I appreciate is my dad taught me the difference between a bolt, a nut and a washer. He taught me the difference between tools. Even though I get the wrench and the monkey wrench <laughs> confused sometimes, I, I don't really know. I guess it depends on the guy who's holding it really is whether or not it's a monkey wrench or not. I'm not sure. But my dad spent time with me teaching me these things. And I may not be the most proficient canic in the world, but I did spend time with my dad in those environments. And he taught me certain things that are only learned in that environment. I'm glad my dad taught me how to change a tire. Man, I don't want to have to call the wrecker every time I have a blowout. My dad taught me just this last year how to change an axle. Well, we kind of learned that together, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> you see, there are certain things that dads ought to teach their sons, and I, I think that's a good thing. You ought to teach them how to work with his hands. Here's another thing I think dads ought to teach their sons, and this is a lost art. And it's no thanks to Ford. Dads ought to teach their sons how to back a trailer. And, and dads teach your daughters that there's a difference between the gasoline pump and the diesel pump. Because dad, when you put your daughter in that little Honda Civic, and I'm driving my Cummins, make sure she's out of my way. I only get two stalls. They got 16 down through there. Teach your children something, parents. I also think that Fathers have a responsibility to teach their daughters some things. And I do think that it, it varies greatly from that which, which you'll teach your son. Um, uh, you know, I hope my daughters know how to fish. I hope they get to go fishing. But that's not primarily what I'm concerned with. If they want to go fishing and they fall in love with fishing, great, I'll take them. Um, but, but I think some of the most important lessons I'll teach my daughters is what beauty is. Because if you let Vogue and Teen Magazine and Nickelodeon and all these other, man, the Disney Channel, you let these people define to them what beauty is, they will never achieve it according to themselves. It is an unachievable uh, 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 picture that Hollywood paints for our children to look like. And you know how I know it's unachievable? Because literally they have to take the most beautiful women in the world and then airbrush them. So dad, teach your children, teach your daughter what beauty looks like. Dad, teach your daughter how, how a man ought to treat a woman. How to respect a lady. Oftentimes the way 
daughters see their fathers treat their mothers is exactly what they'll gravitate to as an adult. Teach your children something. And by the way, dads, it's not all practical stuff like working with tools that you teach your, sh- your sons. I think you need to teach your son how to be masculine. Like preacher spoke on this morning. There is nothing wrong with being masculine. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, just in the circles of ladies that I know, guess what? They kind of like it. They kind of like a, a guy that can do things with their hands and actually not talk with a lisp, believe it or not, uh, and actually have stiff wrists. I think, I think based upon the ladies that I know, they like that in a man. There's a lot of things we should teach our kids. Hey, Dad, what are you teaching yours? What are you teaching your kids? What are you intentionally focusing on training your children? Um, There's some words that maybe other parents uh, let their kids say, maybe that I used to say that we don't say in our home. We had that discussion tonight, actually, with Caitlin. There's some words that we don't say, and you say, are they wrong words? Probably not, but they're not good words. They're not, they're not, they're not, the first time it changed was when I saw my beautiful little girl say a word that made her ugly. The word that she said sounded ugly coming out of her mouth. What are you teaching your children? What are you intentionally focusing on as you teach your children? Let me give you three, uh, three lessons that we ought to intentionally be instilling in our children. Number one, we should teach our children what a relationship with God looks like. Notice in verse number 12, the Bible says this. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. After you read that verse, nothing that follows from chapter or verse number 13 through 26 should surprise you. None of their deeds, none of their desire to have the meat they wanted, none of their desire to go against God's word and God's law, none of their desire to uh, inconvenience those coming for the offering, none of their desire to lay with the women that were coming to worship the Lord, none of that should really surprise you. You know why? Because they weren't saved. They were sinners. Guess what sinners do? This might surprise you. They act like sinners. And that's what these young men were. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's a very difficult thing because as bad as we want to as parents, we cannot choose for our children whether or not they get saved. We cannot choose for our children whether or not they'll love the Lord and serve the Lord. We can't choose it. So how do we teach our children what a relationship with God looks like? I'll tell you, firstly, you exemplify it in your life. You exemplify it in your life. The verse here in verse number 12 calls these children, these young men, sons of Belial. That word Belial is used 13 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Many have different theories on what it might mean, but essentially uh, the first usage of it were probably back right after the flood. And many people believe it belonged to an Old Testament deity, a pagan deity. But irregardless, by this point, the term did not mean any specific God, but rather it meant a child of wickedness and wastefulness. So the, the term had just evolved, and now when somebody was called a son of Belial, it just meant that they were so wicked, and they were wasting everything that God had given them. And that was what these young men were called. The Bible tells us and gives a prescription to us parents how to raise our children, how to exemplify what a relationship with the Lord looks like. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, 
train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's many beautiful promises in God's word. He hath promised he will never leave us nor forsake us is a beautiful promise. There hath no temptation taken you but such as common to man, but God is faithful who will with the temptation uh, will make a way to escape. That's a beautiful promise in the word of God. God will not give you anything above that you can handle. That's a beautiful promise in God's word. Uh, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a beautiful promise in God's word. There's a lot of promises in God's Word, and this is one of them. You do your part, trust God to do His. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a promise. You mark it down, you stamp it. That is what God says. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And I'll say it's very difficult because everyone has a different method of raising their children. I don't know about you, but my children didn't come with instruction manuals from the hospital. I wish they had of, but I feel like when I got home, we were more lost than what we ever thought we were. I mean, just even strapping them down in that car seat the first time was a little bit like building a Lego puzzle I didn't understand. Strapping them down in the car ride on the way home was tough. Now I got a five-year-old that, you know, is smarter than me. She don't just think it. She is smarter than me. I mean, this is tough. And I don't even have a teenager yet. Man, I can't imagine how smart they are when they get to be a teenager. It's going to be tough. Children don't come with instruction manuals. It's difficult because there are many wrong ways to raise children and so few right ways to do it. How do you raise your children? Take your Bible to Psalm chapter 127. This chapter is wonderful. It gives us tremendous detail and instruction as parents. Psalm 127, as the Bible said earlier in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think that Psalm 127 is a bit of an expansion on that verse. The Bible says in verse number one, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Hey, dad, if God's not in your home, you're just struggling along, not accomplishing anything. If God is not first and foremost, if God is not the primary focus, you're just laboring in vain and you're not building anything. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Verse number four, this is a unique verse. I I like these next two verses. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them, for they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The Bible compares children to arrows. And I would say that I'm not a great archer, but I do know a little bit about archery. And it's funny that the Lord would compare children to arrows. And as I think about uh, Psalm or Proverbs chapter 22, train up a child in the way that he should go. You'll notice there's some things about arrows, especially in regards to the era in which arrows would have been made here. Do you know one thing about arrows? They take a tremendous amount of time to make them. Now companies like Easton and Gold Tip and maybe Black Eagle and uh, there's all sorts of beaming arrows. There's, there's all sorts of arrow companies. They just have them rolling off an assembly line. But did you know back then they'd have been whittled out of a single piece of wood? Yeah. 
Even after they had been whittled, they needed to be straight as possible. So eventually, they would whittle them down to the point where now they have a straight shaft. And then they would have to take them. And because the wood was flexible, uh, there's a, a, there's a, a problem when the arrow is too flexible. It won't shoot straight because the oscillation as it leaves the bowstring, the bow is shooting it too hard and it just loses all accuracy. So, what they'd have to, accuracy. so they'd have to take the arrow and actually put it in the fire. And burn it and harden it. And what that did is it removed all the moisture from the arrow and that would harden it. Then they would take the tip and they would hone the tip so that it would become an arrow meant for the purposes of the archer. But this took a tremendous amount of time. And it took far less time to shoot them than it did to prepare them. Dad, you know the mom, the labors that you go over now, the struggles that you face, those are the preparation of the arrows. But it takes that in order for them to meet their use later on. Are you preparing your children the right way? Children, or arrows take a long time to prepare. You know what else they have to do? You have to point the arrow intentionally. You've got you to aim at something. I've hunted a little bit with arrows. I, I, I'm an archer. I pr- pretty much hunt, uh, bow hunt almost all the time. I very rarely pick up a rifle anymore. And you know what I've learned? If I don't aim, I don't hit. There's a saying in archery, it's called aim small, miss small. It means that if you pick a spot and you aim specifically for that spot, more than likely you're only going to miss it by just a little bit. You're probably going to hit it dead on, but even if you do miss, it'll just be by a little bit. Are you intentionally shooting your children? Are you pointing them at something? Are you trying to make sure that they impact the point that you are directing them to? Not only is there a preparation of the arrow, a pointing of the arrow, there's thirdly a paradox of the arrow. And this is kind of weird. Once the arrow is released by the archer, the archer has no effect on it after that. Now the archer spent a lot of time preparing the arrow. The, The archer probably even sanded it down so that it was smooth. There was no splinters, nothing that could snag on the shelf of the of the bow. I mean, the string it has to have the the knock end of the arrow has to fit snugly on the string so that it won't fall off as he draws the bow. But when he does release, it'll have just enough contact with the string that it will release effectively and accurately. I mean, there's a lot of preparation that goes to it. But once the archer lets the arrow go, guess what? He has no say after that. But what's unique is it is only until the archer lets the arrow go that it can actually accomplish that which it was made for. There's a paradox. You see, the archer has to let go of the arrow at the exact right time so that it hits the spot that he wants it to. The archer can't just sit there and say, well, arrow, you going to do it for me? You're going to kill that deer? You're going to wound? Are you going to, in war, are you going to hit that man? I mean, whatever they're aiming at, uh, are you going to accomplish a purpose? It is not until the archer lets go of the arrow that the arrow can accomplish its goal. Man, mama, daddy, are we letting go of our children when we need to? Making sure that they're adequately prepared, both in their knowledge of Scripture and in their knowledge of everyday life. Are we making sure that they're prepared? Are we making sure that they know what a real relationship with God looks like? You ought not rely on the preacher to be the relationship with God that your children see. You know why I say that? Because if a man of God ever lets your children down, they'll never know what it actually looks like. They'll think this whole thing is fake, it's all a sham. And they'll say, yeah, I remember that guy. How many stories have we heard of people that say, yeah, I had a preacher one time that failed. I've never been back in church since. How about you be the example your children see? 
You've got to teach your children, intentionally teach them what a relationship with God looks like. Secondly, this evening I want you to see that we ought to be instilling in them a respect for God's house. Verses 13, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 13 through about verse 17, the Bible says, and the priest's custom was, uh, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest came, the priest servants came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook and three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan and the kettle and the cauldron and the pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh and all the Israelites that came thither. But in verse 15, they did this above that, which everybody else did. You see, everybody else did that. Uh, and they did it in Shiloh too. But in, in, in addition, in verse 15, they also... Uh, when they burned the fat, the priest-servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And I explained that a little bit earlier. If any man said, uh, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou, thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Then in verse 22, we see kind of the second sin that these young men were participating in. The Bible says, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how that they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they were partaking in two sins. Number one, as people were coming to offer their sacrifices, they were taking of the meat prematurely. According to Exodus, the practice of this uh, uh, of the priest's portion was specifically that priest would have a portion of the breast in one offering and a, a portion of the shoulder in the other or the thigh in the other. And these were specific. These were written down. A portion would go to God, a portion would go to the priest, and a portion would go to the people. This was specific. But God was always to receive the first fruits. God was always to receive the best fruits. And then after that, the priest could take that which they needed. And many have asked why uh, these two young men decided to go beforehand and seek uncooked meat. There's two theories on that. Number one, they didn't like the way it was when it was boiled. How many of y'all have picky children? One time today we were at lunch and I think it was Barrett that said, I don't like food anymore. That's what Barrett said. I, I don't like food anymore. I think if you've ever been a parent for very long, you've dealt with something like that. It's gross. I mean, we're all bragging on how good, on how good the spaghetti was today. And Barrett comes up and says, I don't like food anymore, right? You've, you've probably been there. And maybe these two young men just didn't like this boiled flesh. So instead, they wanted to take it. Maybe they wanted to grill it. I can't really blame them there. I like grilled meat a lot better than I like boiled meat. But maybe they wanted to take that meat and grill it or, or prepare it some other way. Or, and this is what I personally believe, uncooked meat is much easier to sell than cooked meat. I think they were going and getting the uncooked meat and then selling it for personal gain. Either way, whatever the reason, they were doing it wrong. God had laid out a specific plan by which they were to follow. Some 400 years after Moses' law had come, they had abused that and uh, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they take it a step even farther and say, no, we want it the way we want it. And it doesn't matter what God's law says. It doesn't matter what you want. We're going to get our way. That is the first sin. The second sin is found in verse 22 is that as women would come to the temple to worship, 
uh, they would meet them at the door and they would uh, sleep with them. And you say, I can't believe that would happen. Now, these women weren't prostitutes. These women were not uh, somehow loose. But I would have you think uh, back in chapter 1, do you all remember Hannah when she came to the altar to pray? you all remember how broken she was? you remember how she was crying tears of great sorrow? Her adversary kept telling her she couldn't have children, and yet her adversary had children, and she was just struggling emotionally, and she came to the Lord and poured, poured her heart out to the Lord. And, and do you all remember what Eli told her? He thought she was drunk. Now, there's only, at least this seems logical to me, maybe that was a problem that Eli faced often. Maybe women would come into the temple drunk, and they would begin to pour their heart out to the Lord. And, and his sons, instead of seeing an opportunity to help those ladies in their walk with the Lord, maybe his sons just took advantage of the moment. Or maybe, just maybe, there's something about a woman that comes to the temple with an emotional need, and those two young men could talk the talk real well, and they met that emotional need. You see, there's a lot of people that come up to the church that have emotional needs, and guess what? They can look at the man of God as answering every question and somewhat become that support. Hey, look, just read the newspaper one day, and you'll see that it is not uncommon for pastors to fall. Why? Because they started to, uh, they started to support this woman emotionally, so she fell in l- lust with them. <laughs> it definitely wasn't love. She began to rely on them emotionally, and they took the relationship a place it should have never gone. I don't know how they came to this place, but in Ahathna and Phineas were taking advantage of these women. And the Bible calls this an abomination to the Lord. Both the things that they were doing were just absolutely awful. But I would suggest to you they were not awful just because of face value. As I mentioned earlier in the sermon, remember what Eli tells them? This is a sin against God. What designates the difference between a sin against man and a sin against God? Well, the only times that I ever find someone uh, sinning against God, with the exception of David, in Psalm chapter 51, where he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Every other time that I can find it, it seems to be directly related to his house and the practices that occur in his house. These two young men didn't take their responsibility Seriously. And it's understandable. They didn't know God. They were just putting on. I mean, they were just playing the game. They were just participating in the show. But, but either way, they had absolutely no respect and did not reverence God's house. Dad, are you teaching your children to respect God's house? I remember when I was much younger, I would come in and uh, I had to sit very much like Caitlin does right here on the front row. Caitlin, other than when I called my children dumb earlier, Caitlin's not been paying attention to me. I mean, she tries, but she's young, she struggles. And, and, but I think what, this, what we're doing here is good because it worked for me and now I can pay attention to preaching. I can actually take sermon notes and they be comprehensible. I can look back months and months later and I can actually tell you what was spoken about. Why? Because I was right there on that front row with my mom the same way Caitlin is. It works. I also remember the day when my mom told me never to draw on an offering envelope. You say, that's just unbelievable. No, my mom paid the bill for those offering envelopes. My mom knows exactly how much those offering envelopes cost. 
Now, I'm not telling you that there's any rule against writing on offering envelopes, but I'm saying from a very early age, my parents instilled in me a respect for God's house. One of, the, one of my favorite things I hear when, when we're after church, we do like the post-church fellowship where everybody just kind of talks and chats and stuff. One of my favorite things to hear is, hey, no running in church. Why? Because I know parents are instilling in their children a respect for God's house. And that's a healthy thing and that's a good thing. A lot of parents aren't doing that and we need to be instilling a, a respect for God's house into our children. Not only do we need to teach our children the lesson of what a real relationship with God looks like, what a respect for God's house is, thirdly, here's what we must do. We must show them what a rebuke for sinful behavior is. This is the primary lesson I think we learn from these two young men and Eli. It's that this father did not take his role as disciplinary, uh, as the one to deliver discipline to his children seriously. Notice in verse number 22, the Bible says, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. Then he goes on to tell them, If one man sin against another, the judge uh, shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. You know, I've read verses 22 through 25 over and over and over and I never once find where Eli did not tell them to do it or, or told them to stop doing it. In fact, the only thing that even comes close is he says, Nay, my son. But I actually think what he's saying there is he's saying, I keep hearing of your evil report. Nay, my son, these are not good things I'm hearing. Uh, let's read it again. You, you draw your own conclusion. He says in verse 23, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. I think that those two sentences right there work together. He's not saying, no, sons, do don't need to do this. He's saying, I keep hearing of all this stuff you do, and yeah, it's not good what I'm hearing. Nay, my sons, I'm not hearing anything good. I never find once where Eli rebukes his sons for doing what they've done. In fact, what he does is, guys, don't you realize that God's going God's to get you? what's your excuse to me? You're sinning against God. And even if you don't agree with my perspective on the way that I read that chapter, take your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 13. You can't argue with this. For I have told him that I will judge his house, that's Eli, forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he, what's that next three words there? Restrained them not. Eli did not take his role as disciplinary seriously. I don't know if it's because he was old. I don't know if it's because he was too involved in uh, performing the duties of the house of the Lord. I, I have no clue. I would not even begin to venture a guess there. But I will say that the Bible clearly says the reason God punished him was because he did not restrain his children from doing what they were doing. And it's a very difficult thing because 
as we look at Scripture, there are plenty of commands to discipline our children. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. How many of y'all know what that word betimes mean? I'll be honest with you. I didn't. In fact, what I thought it meant was many times. But preacher already knew it because I heard he said it. The word actually means early. So let me read it again. And you know that the word betimes means early. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes or early. What I see is I see a lot of parents complaining about the way that their teenager acts. But what I noticed was their kid had been acting that way the whole time. They just have different ways of manifesting it as an older child. Now, I'm not saying teenagers are easy. I can't speak to that. I know I wasn't an easy teenager. But I will say this. The Bible's command is that you would seek diligently. That's the only other way that word is interpreted, by the way. Seek diligently. Seek early to discipline your children. Why? Because train up a child in the way that he should go. Train up a child as they're growing in their formative years. Train up a child so that when he is old, he shall not depart from it. A lot of parents start getting really concerned about their children when they're already old. The Bible says, seek early to discipline these children. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 17, another command to uh, discipline your children. Correct thy son and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give, thee del- uh, he shall give delight unto thy soul. And as I mentioned, this is a very difficult thing. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't spell out exactly how to punish your children, how to discipline your children. In fact, I was so confused on the matter, I sought three different opinions of people who I believe are spiritually mature Christians when we started to have children on when to discipline my children. I've grown up in church. My parents beat me often. Um, and, and yet I did not know the answer to that question. It's very difficult because people have different practices, different ways that they do it. Um, and uh, some people use a belt, some people use a paddle, some people use vehicles. There's just all sort of ways that you can punish children and discipline children. But I struggled with this. I didn't know the answer. So I asked my parents when they began to discipline me. I asked Terry Sears who has been like a second father to me. And I have spent probably more time with, any, with him probably than just about anybody in the church outside of church. I respect him greatly. He's an advisor here at the church. And I asked Jimmy and Pansy Olson, who I respect greatly. I mean, don't judge them based upon Jamie, though. I mean, she's probably like, they raised seven. She's probably like bottom half of those that turned out. But they have some really good ones, and she kind of lowers that average a little bit. But, but I, I tell you, I really respect how they parent. All their children love them. All their children are serving God. I mean, they're, they're great people, and so I asked them. I didn't have the answer. And I would suspect that there's a lot of other parents that don't have the answer either. You know you are to discipline your children, but you don't know how. You know that it's right to discipline your children, but as I mentioned earlier, we live in a different America than what we used to live in. And, it, and probably there have been good parents that, have been, that have, had ran into trouble because they did not, or because somebody didn't agree with the way that they were disciplining their child here in America. How do you do it? 
Well, this is how I would, uh, I, here's how I would say it. I would say that God is the ultimate example of how to discipline children. God's our example in everything. Christ came to this earth and faced every temptation. Uh, and, and he was successful in every temptation. Uh, he, he did not fall one single time. So he is our example in very practical matters. But you see, Jesus didn't have children while he was on the earth. So I don't even have the gospels to point to. I think God the Father and the way that he deals with his children is the ultimate example of biblical discipline. And there's three things I want to note tonight as we close on how God disciplines his children. Number one, his discipline is always motivated by love. Always. And I'll be honest with you, as a parent, that's difficult. Because sometimes you you border on anger. And it's, that's, not, that's not wrong, I don't think. I, I mean, I think carrying punishment out in anger is wrong, but getting angry is not inherently wrong. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. So anger sometimes is a natural emotion that we face, but we should never discipline in anger. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Proverbs 3.11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. You see, God's correction is always motivated out of love. That verse there in Proverbs chapter 3.11, verse, uh, verse 3.11 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. So there's two words that I want you to note. Chastening of the Lord and neither be weary of his correction. Those are two different words, and they mean two different things. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Chastening there means oh, the actions that God carries out. In other words, if we were to draw an equivalent, that would be the punishment that you deliver. Uh, sometimes that might be a spanking. Sometimes that might be sitting in the corner. Sometimes that might be taking things away. But, but that is God's action upon his children. But the other one is, uh, uh, neither be weary of his correction, which involves corrective words. You see, you ought to have a balanced approach to discipline. I've seen parents that it feels like every time their child does just the smallest thing wrong, it's like they just go to town on them. I don't know if that's always right. God doesn't do that with me. Man, I've done a lot of wrong things, and yet God is patient and long-suffering with me. And he doesn't just rain down fire from heaven every time I think a bad thought. Every time I disobey him or don't, don't do exactly what he wants. He doesn't just bring down the fire. Uh, he brought down some hell on my truck today. It was wonderful. My wife cleaned out the garage on Saturday. And we got all this stuff sitting in the garage. So I got these two vehicles out there in the hailstorm. That was wonderful this afternoon. I'm just sitting there measuring how big the hell was as it falls. Like, man, I hope it's not that big. Oh, that's a big one. That's almost like a golf ball. I'm hoping my trucks aren't going to get damaged as, as they're sitting out there. But praise the Lord for that. Uh, I don't know how to discipline my wife. I haven't figured that one out. And I don't even know if it's biblical yet. But... But the Bible says that uh, we should, there's chastening, which is God's action, and then there's God's rebuke, which is corrective words. And here's what I've tried to make a, 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 an intentional approach to doing. When I have to discipline my children, I explain to them why I'm doing it. So they're not just getting spanked, but they are getting spanked and then instructed. 
Here's what's wrong. Here's how to fix it. I even think that's biblical in preaching. There's, uh, the Bible says that uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's things that are wrong, things that are right, and how to stay right. There's, that, that, there's a process there. So God's motivation is always love. Secondly, His discipline is always for our good. My parents said this when I was much younger. You've probably heard parents say it before. They say, uh, they say, this is going to hurt me a lot worse than it hurts you. And what I learned is, that's actually not a lie. I mean, it doesn't hurt me emotionally at all. It hurts my hand. Literally, it hurts my hand. Think about it. They've got a lot more padding on their rear end than i got on my hand. It's all bone there. My wife the other day was telling me, man, I spanked Bailey so hard it hurt my hand, and she didn't even cry. I was like... That's why you spank them four times in the exact same spot. The amount you do it really, really hurts them. You know, we're trying to find strategies on how to punish and discipline our children because we're new to this. We don't know. But I've learned that it does hurt parents as much as it hurts children. But I do know this, that discipline is not for the good of the parents, not because you grow frustrated with the children and you finally almost pay them back of sorts. No, the Bible says that God's punishment to us is for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, the Bible says, Now no chastening uh, for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So God has a place where he wants to bring us as his children and he uses punishment to get us there. There's an end goal that he uses discipline to help us arrive at. We get out of the car here at the church. We park a pretty long way from the door. And man, every time we open the doors to that minivan, I get scared my children are just going to run out in front of traffic. And so with every child I've had to you know, teach them, no, you stay right here at the back of the van. That's one of the reasons we got the lights was because it's hard to see the children. But, I mean, I, I had to teach them, you know, you stay here because there might be cars passing by and they might not see you and they might hit you. Did I do that for my good? Well, not really. I mean, I don't want my children to get over. Whose good did I do that for? I did it for their good. Because I realized that if they run out in front of that vehicle, it's going to hurt them and it's going to harm them. So I teach them things to avoid because there's an eventual pain that they will feel. It's no different in spiritual matters. It's no different in physical matters or real matters. Uh, What I learn is if we would picture every potential issue as a van coming down the parking lot and we're just trying to teach our children to stay away from that, for instance, clean communication... You know the reason we teach our children to have clean communication? Because one day they're going to be in, the wrong, in a very serious place, in a very serious moment. And if they don't have clean communication all the time, guess what? They're going to say something it's going to be the van hitting them. They might be in a business meeting or some very important formal gathering. And they say something they shouldn't say in that moment. Why? Because that's the van going to hit them. We've got to always be thinking about how this is good for our children. So number one. His love is always motivated by, or his discipline is always motivated by love. Number two, his discipline is always for our good. And number three, and I fail miserably at this one, his discipline is accompanied with blessing for obedience. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think I'm a lot better at disciplining my children than I am at rewarding them when they obey. 
You see what I'm saying? The expectation is obedience. But I don't reward them for obedience like I should. See, I'm teaching my children to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, thank you, please. When they say it, though, I don't, I don't say, good job. Where'd he go? It's just what I expect of them. But what I've learned is the way that God deals with me is if I disobey, there's consequences. But if I obey, there's blessing. Blessed is the man that sitteth not in the seat of the scornful, nor standeth in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and he shall make his, his ways prosperous. You see, when I honor God, guess what? He honors me in return. When, God, when I do right for God, God blesses me. Here's what I've found. I'm much quicker to rain discipline down on my children than I am to rain blessing for obedience. There's got to be some incentive. I've got to be able to say, hey, if you obey me here, let's go, let's go get some candy or, or, or let's, let, let, me know, let me share with you how proud I am of you to, to say I love you or, or to say yes or yes ma'am or please and thank you. I think that God's discipline is always accompanied with the thought that I will be blessed if I obey. When I was a basketball coach, uh, JCA, there were seasons that were tremendously frustrating. There were times where I remember one year, the first day of practice, they brought these two kids to me. They were eighth graders, and this first time I'd ever met them. And I'll never forget, on the first day of varsity-level practice, I had to teach two young kids how to shoot a right-handed layup. And you say, well, that seems like your job as a coach. Yes, but we're talking about varsity basketball here. I mean, we're not talking about... I learned to do a layup when I was in first grade, not first year of varsity level basketball. I mean, by the time I was in eighth grade and ninth grade, I mean, I was dropping dimes. I was crossing fools over. Not really to that degree, but, but I mean, I actually had some fundamentals. I kind of knew the game a little bit. And as you show up on the first day of practice as a basketball coach, you have half your team that's kind of carry over from last year. And, and you're trying to teach them, you know, let's, let's get some rhythm as a team. Let's space the floor. Let's, you know, work on this in your shot. These kids didn't know how to shoot. They didn't know what a double dribble was. They didn't know the basic rules of the game. Man, that was a rough year. I mean, we had a decent team, but kind of kicked them kids off. But uh, amen, I was long-suffering with them. Uh, but you see, the cool thing about practice, no matter how good or how bad that day was at practice, uh, you see, we had great days where, man, the kids worked hard, and I had had an up-tempo practice where, man, they stayed engaged the whole time, and we didn't have any turnovers, and everybody protected the ball. They, they didn't, you know, make sloppy passes, and it didn't get, like, street ball. It was actually str strategic and structured basketball. Man, that was good days, and I would go home, and I'd be encouraged. And then some days were not so good where everything was sloppy. Man, we had turnover after turnover after turnover. The guys were not engaged at all. Every time the cheerleaders walked in, the guys were like, what, what, coach, what? And I mean, there was just some good days of basketball practice and bad days of basketball practice. But no matter what, at the end of the day, guess what? I got to go home. I got to go home and kind of forget about it. And at the end of the season, guess what? I didn't have to worry about the team at all. I got to maybe look forward to another season, maybe a new team. 
As a parent, you don't get a break. And the good days and the bad days exist the same. As a parent, there's days when, you know, I never understood shaking baby syndrome until I became a parent. I never understood why my parents got so aggravated with me. I never understood it. I, from their perspective, they were just always wrong. Guess what? I've learned quickly how kids think they're right, and they're just not. You know, you, one of their friends tells them something, and then they come home and tell me that, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not right. That's wrong. And they're like, no, they said it. I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I probably know more than your four-year-old friend. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's good days and there's bad days in parenting. But one thing I've learned, stay the course. And I think our parents in this church need to really focus in on teaching our children what a real relationship with God looks like. You can't choose for your kids what that is to them. You can't make your children get saved. You can't choose for them that they would read their Bible. But intentionally invest in your children and pour into your children your own personal relationship with God. Then we need to teach our children what a respect for God's house is. You know why young millennials are running away from church rampantly? It's because their parents did not teach them the value of church. With every service missed, you're teaching your children a lesson. One that cannot be undone. One that they will not correct themselves. Parent, every, every service you miss speaks volumes to them. I study for hours and I preach sermons that seem to run on that long too. But no matter what I teach them up here, the lessons you teach them in their home will resound much longer than anything that I say tonight. We need to teach them a respect for God's house. What a real relationship with Christ looks like. And we need to teach them what rebuke for sinful behavior is. Not because we hate our children. Not because we're trying to put our children in this little box. You know what I've learned as I coach basketball? You can only get the best out of a team if you apply some structure to it. You can ask Brother Jim. He coached basketball teams. You can ask any coach in the world. You can have the best players on the floor. But if there's no structure, they're all playing one-on-one. There's got to be some structure There's got to be some instruction in righteousness, and that's what parenting is and rebuking is. And I think at the end of the day, what we need to do as parents is we need to ask the Lord for wisdom. I never realized this when I was growing up. I never realized this until I had children of my own, multiple children of my own. But every child is different. By leaps and bounds, same structure, same genes, and they're all different. And and no one plan or strategy works for my kids that will work for your kids. The way I discipline and talk to my children may not work for you. But I'm saying this, we need to pray for wisdom. And fathers, we need to be the example in the home. 